0: Maybe we all pray with me? God, thanks for this night. Thank you that you time and again say that um, you love sinners and that um, you love sinners so much that you would come and that you would die to be with them. Um, We need you tonight to make sense of this text, to make sense of confusing things. Uh, to make clear those things that we don't understand. So we ask that you would do that. And we also ask the Lord that you would speak to us individually um, because we come all over the the map. Some of us knowing you for some time. Some of us frustrated. Some of us um, not knowing what to make of you. Others of us, Lord, just hoping that that we won't be found out, that we won't be exposed. And so, um, would You do Your thing with us? Would You speak to us in a way that's gentle and kind? And uh, would You speak to us in a way that's tough if need be? Uh, But I pray that You would open our eyes, O Lord, uh, to Your beauties, that we might see You, that we might um, catch a glimpse of who You are so that our hearts would be changed and that we would uh, love You more. And it's in Your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, This text is can be very confusing. It talks about some things that most people aren't quite sure what to make of. In other words, who knows what Corbin is? Who knows what in the why in the world Jesus is talking about it? I mean, All that stuff is very much in the text. And I hope that by to the end of tonight, you'll have a better picture of some of these things and actually kind of understand what is going on uh, here in this text. But before we do, you know that we're doing a series called Defeated. And this week, um, I've chosen one that is very common in the Christian subculture. What do I mean? Well, I'm titling it The Marijuana Jesus. Uh, no, that doesn't mean that you, you know, buy an ounce of Jesus and roll them up and smoke them, or put him in a bong and smoke them. I don't mean any of that. But I do mean this. There is a common conception, and I would actually say a common misconception, in a lot of our Christian subculture. It's on this campus. It's in our state. It's in my own heart at times. And that is that that God is really pleased with us when we are, quote, fill in the blank here with some heightened spiritual language, that when we are... Uh, on fire for Him. That when, uh, man, I'm feeling really, really quote, high on Jesus right now. And that when we feel that way, that God is more pleased with us, that He finds us more acceptable, that He looks on us and He goes, that a boy or that a girl. And I actually want to say tonight that that if you... Happen to believe that. I hope that by the end of the night you'll begin to get a glimpse of the fact that um, that is that can be very dangerous. Now I'm going to say a lot more, but I want to just start there. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so where do we go from here? A couple of different places, but first I want to share with you an illustration. When I was a senior and junior or so in high school, I really started to get involved with like rock climbing and rappelling and uh, spelunking. And um, one of the most memorable experience for me was that uh, in Tennessee, there's loads of these limestone caves and cliffs. And uh, the Cumberland River, if you live close to Nashville, on the west side of that, of that, of that city, there, is the, there are these bluffs, and they've been eaten away by the river over you know however many years. And uh, there's, a, there's a place where you can tie a rope on, put your harness on, you know, lock in on that rope, and you can um, there's, it's an overhang by about 20 feet or so, and then it's just 200 or so feet straight down. It's the longest repelling opportunity that I've ever had. But it was really cool because um, the only way that you can really start going down is if you, because it's an overhang, you have about from the podium to the floor of like space before the, you know, before it cuts back underneath you. So you don't have a lot of time to kind of ease into this drop. So uh, what is really, really was really, really fun to do was you could you could literally run uh, if you went. Aussie style, which means you harness in backwards, you're facing down on a rappel, you can just run off the cliff. And you can run off the cliff with the rope holding here and just jump. Now, luckily, there's so much rope at the end of your line for those folks that do this stuff often that the rope itself weighs so much that it slows you down. That you don't have to Always kind of keep a tight grip to slow yourself down. Now, the lower you get, the less rope there is. Just you can think about the physics of that. But here was one of the coolest things once that you made that jump, it didn't really matter anymore what uh, you thought about the uh, ability of your equipment. I mean, you weren't really worried. You might have been worried. There was nothing you could do. You weren't thinking anymore about your harness. You weren't thinking about did somebody check the rope. Uh, it it was a done deal. And in the middle of that descent, the thing that really mattered was not so much how I felt about the harness, about the rope, or about the tree around which the rope was uh, was tied. What really mattered in that moment was the nature of that harness, of that rope, and of that tree. Does that make sense? Like, it didn't matter anymore if I thought, man, did I check my harness again? Because in some ways, you know, it's over with if I didn't. You know what I mean? Now, why do I share that discussion with you? Because I think that that's going to be a great paradigm for us to think through what we're going to talk about tonight let me put it more clearly. There is the subjective, that is, the internal sense or feeling that I had of confidence in my rope and harness and tree. That subjective feeling. Okay? And then, there was the objective nature of the harness, carabiner, rope, all that stuff together. Does that make sense? like, what it was actually like, and the way that I felt about it. See the difference? Huge for where we're going tonight. I'm pushing pause, and I'm going to come to my main points. This text is actually going to reveal a ton about your heart and about my heart. And it's actually going to show us what our heart actually does to try to get God to notice us, to try to get God to love us, to try to get God to accept us, for Him to smile at us. And it's going to show us three things. First of all, it's in your little bulletin there, the heart's tendency. We'll look secondly at the heart's fallacy, and then lastly, the heart's freedom. So we're coming back to that illustration, but just kind of put it on pause for a second. Let's look at the text. What's going on here? Well? Here's what's happening. The religious leaders of the time, these folks known as Pharisees, these would have been folks probably like me. They would have been Bible teachers. They were your professionals. They were your professional religious folks. They knew the Bible, the Old Testament, backwards and forwards. And they were really good at keeping it. They were your holy rollers, so to speak. And then there was almost this subset of Pharisees that were called scribes. Now, not all scribes were Pharisees. And definitely not all Pharisees were scribes. But there was some overlap. And who were the scribes? The scribes were the folks who literally kept up with and knew the details of the law. Meaning, the Old Testament. Okay, They would have known their Bible backwards and frontwards. They were the folks who, were, who weren't merely pastors, but they were like the PhDs in New Testament, who teach at seminaries, who write four hundred page dissertations on Hebrew homonyms? That's how technical they are. Okay, now I say that, and I actually had a teacher who wrote his PhD on Hebrew homonyms. It's a small, it's just a small field. That's all there is to it. Um, anyways, where am I going with this? They have this practice. And their practice is at odds with what Jesus and His disciples are doing. They're looking on, watching Jesus and their disciples. And they raise a concern. And they say, yo, Jesus, how come you and your boys don't wash your hands before you eat? Because it was their practice that they would have to wash their hands before they eat because that was what they believed that God required of them. Now, interesting to note, for all of the Bible that they knew, that is nowhere, not one iota of it hinted at that your common folk would have to wash their hands to be ritually pure so that you might be able to eat. You see, the Pharisees had a tendency to add law to what God had written. And this was one of them. You can read more from your Bible and learn more about that. But this was one of them. In other words, to be right with God, said the Pharisees, to make Him notice you, for make Him accept you, you must keep all of the laws of the Old Testament and then in addition to them, these other ones that we're putting up to prevent you from breaking the interior ones. Does that make sense? So it's like, Here's the law. We're building a fence around it and one of the fence posts is wash your hands. Okay? So that's what's going on here in this text. Now, look what Jesus says when they say, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? Now notice, they're smart. That does not say, why don't they walk according to the Old Testament? The traditions of the elders is literally everything I just explained to you about the fence, but eat with defiled hands. And then look what Jesus says. Jesus says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, the people or this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I'm just going to push pause there to explain this. I talked about our hearts' tendencies. Jesus is saying, as He is citing the prophet Isaiah this, that in His day, there were religious leaders. There were pastors. There were spiritual leaders in Israel who basically said with their mouths, yes, we love God. He's awesome. He's all thumbs. We think He's the real deal. But with their hearts, something else resided there. Okay? They didn't love Him. They were at enmity with Him. In fact, they hated Him. And Jesus is now applying that same category to what's going on with these religious leaders. No, they have not spoken something, but that speaking of something falsely is what is represented here by this moral paradigm of trying to keep all the rules. In other words... They were doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And Jesus is saying that, my friends, is lip service. It is lip service. You're doing one thing for incredibly other wrong reasons. Here's why. Jesus knows that when those Pharisees were actually trying to keep their hands clean before they were eating, they were basically saying, God, we don't need You. We have got this salvation project down. We're keeping all the rules. And now that we're keeping all of the rules, guess what? You owe me. Do you see that? And so Jesus is saying, you guys are absolute hypocrites. And not only are you hypocrites, but... You're paying lip service to God because, in the end, you don't really need Him to save you because you think that you are saving yourself. What am I trying to get at when I talk about the heart's tendency? Listen, y'all, all of us, it doesn't matter who you are, all of us have an incredibly hard time believing that God actually loves sinners. And that He saves them to the utmost. And that He looks at me and that He looks at you in the midst of all of your junk. And He does not ask you to clean up. He doesn't ask you to spiritually wash your hands before He will have anything to do with you. No, on the contrary. He says that He came to seek and to save not what is found, but what is lost. But our hearts, our heart's tendencies don't believe that. And so we resort to plan B. And you know what plan B is? God really doesn't love sinners. There really isn't hope for them. So I need to clean up. I need to get things cleaned up. Now, listen. I'm saying this that every single one of us have some way that we're trying to get God to look at us. You're trying to be the nice person. You're trying to like tell the truth and not lie. You're trying to, you know what? You're not going to go out tonight. You're not going to go out tonight. You're going to go home and you're going to study. Because that's the good thing to do. And then when you pray tonight, or whenever your pillow hits the bed, deep within you, some of y'all will say, God's proud of me. I did the really, really good thing tonight. I'm not saying go out and get wasted. What I'm saying is, is that that's what goes on in our hearts. That you present, look, Lord, I didn't go out on Halloween. Everybody else did. But man, I was squeaky clean and good. And now you owe me, baby. Now you owe me. And Jesus is saying, you know what? I have one word for that. Lip service. Lip service. That's what it is. So, where do we go from here? End of point one. What normally happens then when we see that that's what goes on in our hearts, we go, oh, well, what God really wants me to do is to just not do something external, but He wants me to feel something inside. Do you see what I'm talking about? Our hearts begin to shift and we say, I won't have any sort of external performance going on but, I'll try to be on fire for Jesus. I'll try to amp things up in my own heart and, and then really get going. And then God will be happy with me. And that's what I name naming my second point. You can go ahead and flip, Bora. But this is the heart's fallacy. Namely, that it is that we think that if I just whoop up my heart that God will then be happy with me. Now, I must push pause for a second. This second point is actually an application of the first point. So you're not going to find this in the text, so I'm just going to talk to you. Okay, We're just going to talk person to person. In other words, I know that the second point isn't in this text right now. It's an application of the first point, and I'm going to talk about it. Here it is. Here's why. Y'all, I don't know how many of y'all feel like this. Some of y'all have done a Christian camp somewhere. Some of you have, if you were like me, uh, you spent a month at a Young Life camp, and you worked for a month, and it was an awesome experience. Or you went to Canna Canna Cup camp for, you know, two or three weeks, and you came back, and man, things were awesome. Or you went to church camp once when you were a junior in high school, and you prayed a lot, and you had this really cool little week or whatever, and you came back to wherever it was, and you probably used the language of, man, that was an awesome week, and I now, man, I'm just really fired up for Jesus. And I'm really, really excited, and um, this is, I'm just, I know that what's going on inside of me, God must really, really be excited about or proud about. Now, I want to be real careful. I want you to hear me say wholeheartedly, I want your heart engaged with the beauties of Jesus. In other words, I really do want you to love Christ. I want you to look at him as the most beautiful thing in your entire life and to actually see your heart shaped and changed by him because of all that he is in his holiness and his goodness and his love and his beauty and his truth. I want you to see him as the most compelling thing that ever sat before your eyes. And I want you to actually be changed, and I want you to be moved by that. But here is what often happens. What often happens is is we think that what God really wants from us is for us to really, quote, be on fire for Him. How many of y'all, have? am, am I talking... Smack here. Like, is this is this resonating at all with any of you? Okay, good. Thank God. Because I was like, Am I making a sermon up that nobody knows what I'm talking about? That would be the worst. Anyways, here's what I'm trying to get at. I actually want you to know that those feelings, those emotions, those sensations of elation are good. But hear me loud and clear. I want you to put no confidence in them whatsoever as the grounds for which God is pleased with you. Let me say it again. Those feelings are good and wonderful. But I do not want you to take any steps whatsoever as saying that those are the grounds for which God is happy with me. Does that make sense? I'm going to explain it. Here's why. Because what happens two months after you've left your your camp? You got it. Blair's going, you sink. It's exactly right. So now you're in the valley. Now what does God think of you? If things were going really, really good, when you were having your mountaintop experience, okay? And now God really loves you when you're up there. And He's really, really happy with you and your feelings up there. What happens when those feelings are gone? You see, most of us believe that now that they're gone, something must be really wrong. And God isn't too happy with me anymore. And that He really doesn't care for me anymore. And so, guess what I need to start doing? I need to start whooping it up again. And so, I try to go and create. I try to go to RUF and try to hope, that, hope to God that we sing that one song that's going to make me feel good. Or I go to church, and I'm hoping to God that that one time when I go there... That because I'm down the valley because I don't have all the feelings, because my heart feels more like embers than it does flames. Do you see what I mean by that? That God will come and do something to stir me and give me those feelings. And what I'm trying to say is is that when you have that mentality, you are on a cruising for a bruising, because in the end, you cannot trust your feelings. And you, listen, y'all's generation. I've been around you long enough. You start every sentence with "I really feel like." When you don't mean feel like anything, you mean I really think this. I really feel like I have a ton of homework to do tonight. What does that look? What does it look like for you to feel that you have a ton of homework tonight? It doesn't mean anything. You mean I think that I have. How I, I really I really feel that fill in the blank that's your that's the that is the language that you speak okay how am i getting all this where are we going with all this hang with me i'm spending a lot of time on this point because it's the most important one the high on jesus mentality is not sustainable for you it cannot last god does give us seasons where we have these on fire experiences so to speak but they're going to fade I'm 35 years old, and do you know what I did today? I wrote a sermon. I mowed my yard, and I played with my little girls. And do you know how white hot my heart was today? It was like at a one or a two. Ladies, this is a practical application. Most of y'all, at some point in your life, you're going to get married and you're going to have little ones. And the majority of your life is going to be spent wiping bottoms and making meals and cleaning up the house. Now, I'm not trying to like stereotype roles. My point is, is that like I'm trying to give you a picture of what life looks like. And in that moment, if you were to ask my wife Laura, Laura, are you so on fire for Jesus today? she would say, no, I cleaned poop up all day long. And then for dinner, all I did was throw a pizza in the oven because that's all I have time for. Where's the white hotness in all that? It's non-existent. Here's the question. Does Jesus love my wife less? No. No. And that y'all, it's where I come back to the actual illustration of the rope and the carabiner and the whole bit. Look, in the end, it is not your feelings as it were that should be the ground whatsoever for how much God loves you. The ground for it should be the God in the person of Jesus Christ loves you. Period. So I don't care if you're white hot or if you're ashy cold. I put this on my Facebook uh, post today. I don't know how many of y'all saw it. I said, on hearts ablaze or cindery or cinders Christ's grasp is equally firm. I mean to tell you that if you're white hot with passion for Jesus, or if you're over here going, I just don't feel a whole lot today, Lord Jesus, that Jesus is holding on to both of those people equally firm because He loves you. And in the end, it's not your feelings that are saving you. In the end... It is Jesus' grasp on you that saves you. And here's the last sort of point of application. I'm not even going to get to my third point because this stuff is just too important, too important. If your mentality is that Christ only loves you when your heart is set on fire for Him, here's the problem. Suffering is coming in your world one day. You're going to lose a parent. You're not going to get the job that you want. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to nosedive. And you're going to hurt. And your heart's not going to feel all kumbaya, Jesus, I really, really love You. And so what I'm trying to get at is I'm trying to say that so long as your feelings about what Jesus Jesus thinks of you Meaning, He's so excited about my white-hot heart. You actually won't know how to suffer. And I'm telling you this right now. Because of that, you won't know how to walk with Jesus. Because there's a... I'll just go ahead and say it. The vast majority of Christian life is spent in suffering somehow. It just is. That's not me making that up, trying to be morose and sad. That, that's Jesus saying, if you follow Me, you're going to carry a cross on your back. And that's going to feel like death. You see what I'm saying? So where can we go from here winding down, putting a final point on this? Again, I'm scratching the third point. That's quite all right right now. Um, man, I didn't even explain the text where I wanted to. Oh, well, we'll just, it's okay. We can hit it up some other time. We can do lunch if you want to know more. Benjamin Warfield, his name is B.B. B. Warfield, was an old professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. And he actually has a quote that um, I want to read to you that I think sums up well what I am trying to get at. Now, he is talking about our faith, meaning the thing that our trusting, our trusting mechanism. And I want you to listen very carefully, and I'm going to try to explain this. He says... It is not faith that saves. Some of you are going, what? But faith in Jesus Christ. It's not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves. What? Are you speaking heresy, Ryan? No, listen. It's not, even uh, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves. Here it is. But Christ saves. That saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or in the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. What am I getting at? What does that mean? Ready? Rope, harness, tree. I got faith in that harness. I don't have faith in that harness. The harness gets me down to the bottom. What saved me? My belief in the harness itself? No. The harness. We're changing up a little bit. Are you saying, Ryan, that I don't have to have faith in Jesus to be saved? I'm not saying that. I am not saying that for the record. Faith is the hand that grasps on to Jesus. But sometimes, as y'all all all know, the grip is weak. The flame is not blazing. It's one pinky like this. You you know what I mean? In fact, Jesus says this. For y'all, the faith the size of a mustard seed is all it takes. That's how big a mustard seed is. That's it. Because in the end, it's not your faith in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. So, marijuana Jesus, I want you to have good feelings. I want you to look though at the One who saves you and how He saves people with dead, cold hearts and let that literally be the fuel and the match that sets your heart ablaze. The fact that He loves sinners. The fact that He loves people with dead hearts the fact that he loves people who don't love him in fact before he saved you if you're in him he calls you an enemy and he comes to you and he rescues you when you don't love him when you hate him he says you're mine come and he makes your heart alive and when you begin to see that guess what do you know what happens to your heart it slowly begins to grow the flame begins to rise because you know deep down that that is one of the most beautiful, awesome, glorious things in the whole world. That God does not wait for you to clean up your act to come to you. He comes to you in the midst of your funk, in the midst of your folly, in the midst of your, you know what else it starts with an F. And He loves you. That's the promise of the gospel. God, thank You for Your grace. Please make clear these things and impress them on our heart. Uh, I know that I cut off uh, one of my main points, but I, I needed to spend time talking about this to clear things up. I want people's hearts to, in fact, be on fire for you, but for right reasons, because they've caught a glimpse of the beauty of Jesus that He saves Sinners, He saves broken people. He reaches in and rescues when we can do nothing to gain Your attention, but that You do it all, O Lord. And I want that to melt us and to change us. So would You do that even now? Would You take my crazy nonsense that I speak sometimes and make it clear to my friends? And would You help us to sing about You being the solid rock? It's in Your name. Amen.